0: Yes, no. no. I know, after that, I mean, I was thinking David was playing just then. I was thinking, that's a better sermon than I'm about to give. Maybe we should just go right to closing prayer when he's done. That was beautiful, David, actually. So, it's a great verse. The whole mystery of the kingdom captured in a comforting, heartwarming, cozy, pleasant, child friendly metaphor. It's beautiful. The great shepherd. I remember sitting in Sunday school having cookies and coloring in pictures of this great shepherd, and it was always associated with the parable of the lost sheep. But here's the challenge. Here is the challenge. When Jesus said this, his audience would have heard a massive oxymoron. Massive. Who's got some favorite oxymoron? English teacher? Jumbo Shrimp, shrimp. (laughs) excellent, Shay. Any others? Don't be shy, we're a small group this morning. Wow, rich, (laughs) Smith? Reach down, nothing
1: was there. (laughs) Reach
0: down, nothing was there. (laughs) There you go. Well, here's some of my favorites, and this is up there with with them. Jumbo Shrimp, Shay said, crash landing, liquid gas, Seriously funny, clearly confused, unbiased opinion. That's always my favorite, unbiased opinion. See, here's why they would have heard an oxymoron in Jesus' day. Shepherds in Jesus' day were the dispossessed. They had nothing but their sheep, they were not trusted, and they were actually considered the dregs of society. In the Mishnah, which is the written down version of the oral law in Judaism. In Judaism, One passage describes them as incompetent. Another says no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. Think about that. Another passage in the Mishnah says no one should uh, shepherding is found in a list of jobs that the Mishnah considered wrong and that no respectable father should ever teach their child. They were deprived of all civil rights, shepherds were, and they were not even admitted in court as witnesses. This is what shepherds were in this day when Jesus stood up and said, I'm the good shepherd. (laughs) One scholar wrote that to buy wool, milk, or a lamb from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. They were basically despised. And Jesus stands up in the middle of this culture and says, Hey, I'm the good shepherd. Challenging, isn't it? Challenging. Very challenging. But here's the thing. I think it can help us understand this parable better. It is a wonderful parable. It's fabulous. It's just probably not the parable we were taught in our Sunday school class. See, Jesus starts by asking what seems like a rhetorical question expecting an affirmative answer. Right? Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and We're thinking, well, Jesus wants that affirmative answer. Well, yes, I would do that. But I'm not so quite sure that's his intention at all. Remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to the Pharisees and scribes. So I think what we have here is Jesus' familiar irony and sarcasm that we see a lot when we're reading the Gospels closely. Because given what we now know about shepherds, can you imagine their reaction to Jesus comparing them to shepherds? Just think about that. Suppose one of you was a shepherd. They would have just are you kidding? We would never be a shepherd. Ever. Their reaction must have been quite more infuriating. I think he is calling into question their lack of interest in the lost altogether. He knows... Even if they had sheep, they wouldn't go looking for the lost one. Because they don't. They don't go looking for the lost one. They won't even associate with them. Remember, he told this parable because the Pharisees and scribes were upset about what? He was hanging out with the lost. He was hanging out with the sinners. And they were furious that he was doing this. That's why he told this parable. Interesting. We have to remember this context. So, he's telling this story to call into question their understanding of God. They assume God is like them, and certainly not a loser like a shepherd. So, he tells the story. So, remember, this imagery of the loser, the dispossessed, the marginalized of society, this is the same imagery we have been looking at all summer long. With the great banquet, those difficult statements that we encountered last week, and now again, Jesus continues on with this imagery. Since the beginning of the summer, we've been looking at the series that I mentioned at the beginning of the service about this us them paradigm that our country is, in our culture, is just stuck in winners, losers, right, wrong, right, left. And on and on and on the us-them paradigm goes. And it's about them and us and, and who's in and who's out and who's good and who's bad. And it's just, it's everywhere and it's constant. And then we come to God's kingdom and we find that it's just not that way. As we explored that parable of the great banquet, we discovered that at the heart of God is grace, pure and simple. Grace but that because of our insistence on being winners who do not need grace, we find the demands of grace way too difficult. See, we looked at this last week. Grace must be received. That is the demand. But those who do not think they need grace, reject it over and over and over, both directly, if we we don't think we need grace, we just reject it, and we reject it indirectly when we're not sharing grace with the world around them. Think about that. Remember, if we think grace is at the heart of God and the final reality, but we refuse to live into it and share it, then what does that say about what we do really believe, right? So if we're, it's sort of when Jesus... Remember when Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you? That's another one of those challenging statements that people want to turn into exactly what it's not saying. Jesus is not saying, if you don't forgive, God's going to be mad at you and hold withhold His forgiveness. That's not at all. That's not the biblical scripture. That's a Greek understanding of our Bible. Jesus is saying, listen, if, if you don't forgive others, then what does that mean about what you think about forgiveness? If you claim, if we claim that God's forgiveness of us is the redemption of the world, is our salvation, if we really believe that, if we really believe forgiveness makes us right with God and changes everything and then don't forgive others, then do we really think that about forgiveness? You see, do we really believe that? No. Then we must be rejecting the truth of forgiveness. And this is like we saw last week. Jesus said, if you don't give up everything, you can't be my disciple. Not because it's a payment, but because as long as our hands are filled with something else, how can we receive grace that God wants to give us? Okay. This rejection of grace is the singular most damning position we can have as human beings. This is why we're going to see when we start Galatians, St. Paul was so passionately adamant that we never leave the gospel of grace, ever. When we step outside the gospel of grace, we're outside of God's kingdom. And so this is how grace works. This is why Jesus was constantly telling these parables about grace and how grace works. Be a loser enough to receive grace have nothing left but need of grace, and will get it. See, this imagery of losers, and this is important as we talk about this today, this imagery of losers is not about that they need grace and winners do not. That's an us-them paradigm that doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. The only thing that separates the losers from the winners in the Bible And in reality, if we believe the Bible is is an accurate representation of the human narrative, then the only thing that separates them is the losers know they're losers and need grace. The winners blindly assume they are not losers, and so they reject grace. There's the only difference in Scripture. The losers know it, and they receive it. The winners don't know it, and so they reject it. See, in our world, it's so hard, and and for those of us that have been brought up in, in a very... In a form of Christianity that is all about the us-them paradigm, the haves and the haves-nots. And we live in this culture of have and haves-nots. It's hard to understand that in the kingdom of God there, it is not haves and have-nots. It's have-nots and then God has. That's it. That's the biblical story. And anything the have-nots have is God's, not theirs. There's the biblical story. And this is why Jesus is so passionate about telling this. And this is the immediate and even fuller context that we have for this parable that we're looking at. The Pharisees and scribes, the recognized winners, are judging Jesus for hanging out with the losers, tax collectors and sinners. Do you see? And that, and, and so Jesus launches into this parable, and so understanding that this is what Jesus is fighting, this us-them paradigm, brings us right to the heart of the parable. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. But this demands a lot of thinking. This seems like a very straightforward verse. So try to, I, I'm doing my best here to, to break this down as, as well as I know how. But if, I get, if it gets confusing, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but just try to hear what Jesus is getting at. Keep this context in mind. The Pharisees, why did he tell this parable? The Pharisees were furious. He was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Okay? So, doesn't it seem... Let's start with this. Verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I want you to think about this for a second. If Jesus is calling himself the good shepherd, if he's calling himself the good shepherd, And he is using this parable to talk about God's work in the world. Would he make the shepherd so stupid? I'm serious. Think about this. If you leave 99 sheep in an open field to go find a lost sheep, what are you going to have when you come back with your lost sheep? One found sheep. That's it. Think, th- think about this. She, she, in the open country, what's going to happen to 99 sheep? Some of them are going to get eaten. Some of them will wander away and get stuck in a bramble bush. Some of them are going to fall off a cliff. They're not going to be there when you get back. No shepherd would do this. This is dumb, stupid. And I, right now, people are being, wow, he is ruining my favorite story ever. <laughs> It is a beautiful story. It's just not what we think. It's an amazingly beautiful story. Dave, do you just let your? Do you have a place for your chickens at night? Yeah. How come? Because they'll, they'll get eaten. They'll get eaten. And those are just chickens. Yeah. Imagine if, and then i not smart. Sheep. So then, I don't think though Jesus is suggesting at all that the good shepherd is stupid. And I don't think he's suggesting God is stupid at all. I know the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. St. Paul said that in Corinthians. Because the cross of Christ, God dying for us while we were his enemies, that is foolish. But that's our perspective. That's not stupid. This is just plain stupid from any perspective. No shepherd would do this. Now even even these despised of society shepherds, they're not dumb. So, what is God getting at here? What is Jesus' point in telling this? Well, remember God's not like us. Remember that. He does not work the way we expect Him to or even want Him to. God's in the grace game. He's not in the human justice game. And He is certainly not in the human righteousness game. So remember last week, when we looked at those challenging statements that Jesus made, I suggested that... Excuse me, Jesus will use imagery from our perspective on life to try to get us to wake up to his perspective, and as we read through the Gospels, read the gospels they 're so awesome, and you 'll see this a lot. Remember that really tough story when the, the woman comes to him and she 's like, "Yeah no you, you 't the dogs don 't get crumbs from the table. Remember that difficult, difficult story that 's a brutal story. We should actually study that here because in the end. When you really explore that in context, Jesus is surrounded by his own disciples, who that's their mindset. And he mirrors for them their mindset. And they're like caught completely off guard. Like, wow, we are really like that. So here, and so last week, when he used this imagery that sounded like you had to pay to be in the kingdom. But we know we don't have to pay. We can't pay. But he wanted, he said, it's going to sound like this. To give up everything in your life, to receive grace, it's going to sound like pain, Right? So here, I believe the same thing is going on. We live in this us-them paradigm that we just talked about. We're discovering his kingdom does not function that way. So this is his nod to our ways. Okay, We love this paradigm. We love it. The one lost and the 99 good. We love this. right? So he uses our language to get us to open up. Here's the deal. There are no not lost sheep. They're all lost. Just as there are no, not lost people, we're all lost. We're all lost. Our lostness makes us so attractive to God. Our lostness drove Him to the cross, not our goodness. That's why He had to die, remember? And I believe the 99 righteous person Jesus talks of as he explains the parable, this is more sarcasm. Remember his audience. Who is his audience? The righteous scribes and Pharisees who think they're in. This is why he so cavalierly says more rejoicing in heaven. More rejoicing in heaven. God doesn't have favorites. I know we think he has favorites, and most of us think we're his favorites. We're in. Everybody else is out. God doesn't have favorites. Everyone who is found causes heaven to rejoice, and everyone needs to be found. There are no 99 righteous persons in heaven. They don't exist. See... This is why it's always so important. Whenever I get in these long theological debates with people, I always keep bringing them back to their central truth that they believe in. And they get so frustrated with me. But the reason I do that is because as they go on and on and argue their theologies, they're completely inconsistent with their central truth. If the central truth of Scripture is, there are none righteous, no, not one, right? Right? And we claim to believe that as Christians who believe Jesus had to die for all of us. Yes, no? Sleeping? Hello? Awake? Anybody? Chris, yeah, Chris is back there. Um, this is our central truth that we believe. Then you can't all of a sudden go to this parable and rip this out and say, Oh, there's 99 righteous people in heaven. No, there's not. They don't exist. The only people in heaven have been found, and therefore there's a ton of rejoicing, and our righteousness in heaven is God's righteousness given to us, right? This is the central truth we believe. So the author of our faith, Jesus wouldn't change it. He would use, but this beautiful story, though, to open up the eyes to the Pharisees and scribes. You think you're sitting in heaven, 99 righteous. No, that doesn't exist. The only one in heaven is those who we fi- I find, that receive grace, that want to be found. Now, here's the deal. I think some of the challenge of understanding this, because I I still see some people looking at me, "David's wrong. Which is okay, I might be. Is the way he ends this. This one here. More rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. We've looked at this word repent here a lot, can you remember? We've talked about this, I hope if you've been here, if you haven't, we've looked at repent a lot. This story is a perfect example of why the way this word has come to be understood, which is far different than a scriptural understanding of repentance. See, the word "repent" today has come to mean have have this sense of the idea of we forsake our sins and we turn to morally perfect living. Okay, that's what repent tends to have that sense. Maybe that's what you've been taught that repent means, but that is what it has come to me, that's not really consistent with the scriptural understanding of repentance at all. And I think it's so important to get back to the scriptural understanding, and this is a perfect, I should have used this in the lesson that we did when we talked about what repentance really means. So let's let's try to, let's do this, this morning I want to just look at it in context, let's look at this word in context of this story, and let's think about it, okay? and see if we can't get to what is getting at. And, and if you were here for those other teachings, this will be a nice supplement to those other teachings. If not, let me know and I'll get you those other teachings. But anyway, now, we have to do it in context. But before we do that, I used a different illustration last week, remember? Mad about my flat, which Siraj is today because they got a flat tire, I'm so sorry. But, you know, if I said mad about my flat to you, You hear, I'm angry about my flat tire. If we were sitting in the middle of Scotland or England or Ireland and I said, I'm mad about my flat, you would hear, I love my new apartment. I love my apartment. You see, context. So today I wanna use a different one. Imagine, imagine 2,000 years from now, people are an excavation site right here in New England. They're not from New England. They're from another part of the globe, okay? Don't even know the English language. There's a few scholars that know it, but no one else really knows the English language and they're on this excavation site, and they find one of our kids' diaries. And one of the sentences in our kids' diaries was, the ice cream we had today was wicked. <laughs> now, just come on. Have, think about it. You do understand, this is how we approach Scripture. 2,000 years later, and we know what it means. If they don't even know what ice cream is, and they do this entomological study of the word wicked, they're gonna come to some interesting conclusions about ice cream, aren't they? (laughs) Think about that. Ooh, I wonder if it was a demigod. Or maybe it was a demon, or maybe it was a terrorist. What is ice cream? But if they're really confident they know ice cream is some sort of dessert, then they can start digging deeper than just a word study and they can get into context and cultural context and sub-level definitions and idioms and all of a sudden they're like oh those kids must have been using that word to mean really awesome because that's what they did in New England in the 2000s and 1980s and 1990s do you see? Hmm. okay so then what could Jesus be saying here? well Consider the parable Jesus tells immediately after this one. This is our context Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's the same point. The sheep and the coin are completely incapable of any kind of repentance. As we understand repentance. They did nothing in order to be found. Nothing. They simply existed in their lostness. The whole finding... The whole finding thing was purely the responsibility of the shepherd or the woman in the coins case. Think about this. So, if we insist on the notion that God forgives us only after we somehow turn from being lost, in other words, to use the language we're using today, and turn, make ourselves winners, then I think we're missing the whole point Jesus is making in this parable. And more, I think we're rejecting the very heart of the gospel. For here's the heart of the gospel according to St. Paul. God demonstrates own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The most dangerous thing we can do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is, when we get into Galatians, you're going to see Paul is angry when he writes that letter. Angry. <clears throat> is because when we reject grace, we're rejecting grace. And when we take the us-them paradigm that we live in in our kingdom and put it into God's kingdom, it's the worst thing we could possibly do. So Jesus tells these great stories to warn us. Don't do it. The sheep did nothing. They didn't suddenly come out from behind the bramble bush. Here I am, find me. And the coin doesn't jump out from underneath the couch. Here I am, find me. This parable is not about what we do. It's about what God did. It's about the mystery that because we are lost, God will find us. Because we are dead, God will save us. Because we are losers, God will have mercy on us. Because we are weak and incapable of doing it ourselves, God will redeem us. So then what does repentance mean? Well, it is understanding exactly that. The sheep was lost and existed in its lostness. Knew it was lost and got found. The coin knew it was lost. It existed in its lostness. It was found. The scriptural understanding of repentance is exactly that. Being lost. And understanding we're lost. It is ending our foolish pursuit of doing it ourselves. Ending this idea of thinking we are winners, or can be winners, or should be winners. And accepting that we are really lost, and believing His love, trusting His grace will find us. So, repentance is changing our minds about what we are. Losers, not winners. And this is the hardest thing. Right now I'm even thinking, am I really in the middle of America giving a sermon on being losers? (laughs) One of my favorite theologians, I, I should have brought the book. Um, he starts off his book, and it's all about this fact that God had to die to save us, and there's nothing we can do. And he starts off the book with this beautiful prayer about, yeah, God, I, I don't know why anyone would buy this book, and I don't know how to market this book about being losers in an American culture. So I want you to think of it this way. Even this term, losers to us, is so offensive. But I want you to think of it like this. What, what, what makes winners winners in our world? What makes people great in our country? Well, any time you're not hitting those marks, then we're the opposite. We're the losers. And if we're all human, and we are, I think, we're all human, I hope, here today, anyway. we're all suffering, aren't we? Isn't there something wrong in your life right now? I can do this with Ben because we're good friends. Ben has cystic fibrosis. So in, in the world of healthy people, Ben's a loser. How many of us are sick or have family that have real bad diseases? Losers. In America, you're supposed to be rich. Well, I'm not. Loser. In America, you're supposed to have great 401ks. I don't even have an IRA. Loser. See what I mean? And on and on we can go and we can identify things in our lives. And instead of jumping on the American cultural bandwagon that has even infiltrated the Christian church in America that, oh, we gotta be better, we gotta be good, we can do we No, just accept what we are. Because guess what? That's when God finds us. You know, sometimes I even look around and I, I talk to Rich about this. This is probably one of the reasons that Cain is optional for so many people. What I mean by optional is, you know, they come when they can, is because I often repeat this theme, and in America, this is a hard theme to constantly be repeating. And so people are probably like, "Yeah, he called me a loser, so I can only handle that once every six weeks. I'll be back in six weeks." Um, but don't think of it that way. This is the gospel. Jesus, when he died, had about twelve people left. Because the gospel is a harsh one, but it's so beautiful. Uh, we could fill this place up right away if we wanted to be political. If we wanted to get us, them, we well, would fill it up. If we want to go good, bad, we want to use but we can't. This is the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And the best part for all of us, for me anyway, I there's so much in my life that makes me a loser. And where those things used to bother me and frustrate me and I'd always be fighting against it and be miserable, now I just sort of embrace them. This is what makes me found. It's awesome to be found. So the good news is, God loves us the way we are, losers, and when we insist on trying to make ourselves better so that He might be willing to find us, we're in effect moving outside of grace. It's only the lost that get found. Only. Only. Just like we saw last week, it's only the losers that accepted the invitation to the greatest party in town. None of the winners got it. They didn't accept it. They were invited too. The Pharisees and scribes were invited. This is Jesus' point. Just be the one found. Don't pretend to be the 99 that don't exist. It's not going to get you. So how does this apply to our lives? Well, I talked about that a little bit just now. As I wrap up, But just... Bring it back together in case I, I wasn't clear. It depends where we're at. I think this parable is amazingly, amazingly comforting for the majority of us. It's also going to be very challenging for, for some of us. Comforting if, 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 if we feel like we're constantly trying to get better and nothing's happening. If we feel like we're out of control and security seems so far away, and that there's a lot of people frightened and terrified right now, right? That security is, is, is not here. If we feel like we're lost in the midst of a chaotic and uncertain world, if we're lost in our own suffering, well then guess what? This is the most beautiful, hopeful parable for us because that is good. Let's embrace our lostness and trust that God is looking 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for lost people and he will find us because that's the business he's in. And as Snodgrass wrote, he will find us in the desert of death, not in the garden of self-improvement. And he will find us in the power of Jesus' own death. God will rejoice as he puts us on his shoulders and brings us home. That's why I love this picture so much. I don't know if it's clear, but isn't that the best picture? I love that. If you can see it, just God holding, Jesus holding the sheep. And home is the exact place we're trying to get to anyway, isn't it? Isn't this what we want? To be home. Now, for those of us, though... are convinced of the illusion that we are or have to be winners for God to love us then let this parable be a warning let this parable be a warning we aren't and can't be winners enough for God we can't, we aren't, we can only be lost enough for God so we need to give up our pride and let him save us, find us transformed And that leads to the most amazing part of this whole mystery of grace that we've been talking about a lot lately is when we are safe and secure in His keeping because He found us, not because of something we did, but because He found us, we will start being free enough to let us make it, to let Him make us into the people He wants us to be. There's the transformation bit. See, He loves us the way we are, lost, but surely he doesn't want us to remain lost. That's why he finds us and brings us home, right? He doesn't want us to remain dead. He doesn't want us to remain in prison. He wants that we live found, that we live alive, and that we live free. The difference is, and this is so important, he does it for us in the mystery of the power of grace. By repenting that we can't do it ourselves. Repenting that we can never be good enough. And then He starts to transform. One of the the hardest things for new believers, and it's normal though, and you have to let this happen, and it's one of the hardest things to let happen with new believers that you're very close to and you love so dearly, but one one of the things that happens with new believers is they love grace and they buy grace and they fall on to grace because they know they know they need God's grace right but then all of a sudden they start becoming good and they naturally fall away from grace and it's all about what they do in performance and and it never lasts long that's a very dangerous that's a it's a danger it's a necessary but dangerous stage of faith we, we, we will all go there and, 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 that, and so I encourage you if you know people that are in that stage just let them be in that stage love them, pray for them don't fight it, it's a good place but because they're going to need you when the time comes when they, they learn they can't be good enough and that's a hard place and that, that's, that's the danger zone because then I, I've seen people give up faith at that point that's when you need to be there to remind them, no, remind them of the gospel again grace again, right then when they start coming out of that do-it-themselves-great faith. That's huge. So, it's the best way to end. I, I don't know. Other than to say, I hope in, in a roundabout way I, 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 I've helped make this very simple parable uh, clear as mud and <laughs> And then clear earth again after we we went there. It's a beautiful parable. He finds us. He finds us, and to know that it's the most beautiful thing in the world. But in order to be found, we have to recognize we're lost first. But then he'll find us. And we all at some that's right, Craig. We just have to know we're losers, and then we're winners because of God. It's beautiful. I I think at some level this. This song cap- cap- captures this parable wonderfully.